Hello, and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm John Harkin, ABI's Public Affairs Officer, and we appreciate you listening. Today's podcast features experts examining the Supreme Court's June 15th opinion in Locke du Flambeau, Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians versus Coughlin. Joining us today are Professor Jack F. Williams of Georgia State University College of Law, whose areas of interest include bankruptcy, debt, finance, forensic accounting, veterans' issues, archaeology, American Indian and tribal law, and business law. Also joining us is Tom Salerno of Stinson LLP, who works with a global roster of clients from an array of industries, including casinos, hotels, real estate, tech, sports, power generation, healthcare, and many more. He is an adjunct professor and a prolific author and lecturer, writing for both practitioners and corporate executives. Our moderator for today's podcast is ABI Editor-at-Large, Bill Rochelle. Bill provides his authoritative take on legal developments affecting bankruptcy practice in his namesake ABI publication, Rochelle's Daily Wire. Rochelle published for Bloomberg every day from 2007 to 2015, and prior to his second career in journalism, he practiced bankruptcy law for 35 years. Now I'll turn it over to our moderator, Bill Rochelle. Thank you, John. As John just said, our responsibility in the next few minutes is to talk about the June 15 decision by the Supreme Court in the case that will be known as Locke du Flambeau. This was a decision on tribal sovereign immunity, and it resolved a split of surrogates. Here is how it came down, and factually speaking, it was a very compelling case, at least emotionally speaking, from the point of view of a bankrupt debtor. This man had received a loan of about $1,100 from a corporate payday lender owned by an Indian tribe. By the time this man filed bankruptcy, the loan had risen to $1,600 because these payday loans always have extraordinarily high interest rates. Although this man was in bankruptcy, the payday lender owned by the tribe continued bugging him to collect the loan. He told the lender on several occasions that he was in bankruptcy, but the lender persisted, and the debtor says that eventually he attempted to commit suicide, thank goodness unsuccessfully, because of the continued attempts to collect the loan that he thought was being barred by bankruptcy. He brought an action in bankruptcy court to hold the tribal lender in contempt and to stop further collection actions. The bankruptcy judge, however, said no. Tribal sovereign immunity bars this lawsuit. There was a direct appeal to the First Circuit, and the circuit court reversed in a two-to-one decision with a lengthy dissent. The majority took sides with the Ninth Circuit, 
and held, as had the night, that tribal sovereign immunity was barred or waived by Section 106A of the Bankruptcy Code. This decision further deepened the split of circuits with a 2019 decision from the Sixth Circuit, which hence said there is indeed tribal sovereign immunity. And if you're curious why the Sixth Circuit decision did not go to the Supreme Court, given an important split of circuits, it's because that case was seven while a cert petition was pending from the Sixth Circuit. Well, Justice Jackson wrote the opinion for the court. There was, by the way, a concurrence by Justice Thomas and a dissent, a lengthy dissent, by Justice Gorsuch. Basically, Justice Jackson told us in her opinion that to waive sovereign immunity, there are no magic words, but that the intent of Congress must be, and I use her words, unmistakably clear. She went on to hold, essentially, that the definition of governmental unit for the waiver of sovereign immunity was crystal clear, and that, therefore, because tribes are governmental units, the immunity was waived. Before we get into an explication of exactly what this means in bankruptcy and elsewhere, I want to ask our tribal law expert, Professor Williams, about the other decision that the Supreme Court made this year involving Indian tribes. Uh, I suppose, uh, Judge Williams, you could say that the tribes lost this one, but how did they fare in the other Indian case in the Supreme Court this term. Well, uh, Bill, thank you. It's a it's a great question. the um, The last couple of years, last handful of years, have have uh, we've witnessed a number of of um, federal Indian law cases in the Supreme Court uh, that implicated some some of the uh, most fundamental and foundational principles of tribal sovereignty and sovereign immunity. This go around, there were two cases of interest. There was the uh, Bracken, the Halland versus Bracken case involving the Indian Child Welfare Act. And of course, the Coughlin case that we're uh, talking about here involving um, the waiver of sovereign immunity uh, under the bankruptcy code. Um, the Bracken case um, involved Texas, Indiana, and a number of other states that challenged the Indian Child Welfare Act, in particular, the provision of the Indian Child Welfare Act that um, creates a preference and standing um, on behalf of Indian tribes involving Indian children who are the subject of adoption proceedings and, and generally state domestic um, courts and uh, domestic proceedings. Uh, the, um, the Supreme Court uh, reaffirmed both the sovereignty and nationhood and citizenship of Indian tribes that are federally recognized and the enrolled members of those tribes uh, and um, rejected the argument that a preference on behalf of Indian families and, and uh, tribal standing uh, to protect Indian children through this process uh, would have violated the uh, 
the um, equal protection clause or the due process clause um, of the Constitution, other civil rights statutes. So it was a major win uh, for uh, tribal sovereignty uh, and self-governance. And it also took a big step in rectifying a really dark history in this country and in Canada for that matter regarding the forcible removal of Indian children from Indian families and their tribal connections into the Indian school systems that were largely um, government-run, um, where things like the uh, an Indian child's ability to practice their family religion or tribal religion, um, to, um, to speak their tribal language, uh, to uh, practice their tribal traditions were all uh, forbidden, uh, oftentimes under penalty of corporal punishment in those institutions that dotted uh, many areas of the uh, of the United States and, and Canada. So that was a great win for those of us who care about tribal sovereignty. Uh, and it was um, a reaffirmation of, of this notion of tribal uh, government and citizenship and also a reaffirmation of the the McGirt case um, that was several years back involving uh, the Oklahoma tribes and and the um, the finding by the Supreme Court that uh, the creation the organic statutes creating and recognizing the state of Oklahoma uh, did not abrogate the the old treaties that provided the boundaries of uh, of um, the reservations among. Uh, the uh, now in subsequent cases interpreted the, among the uh, Oklahoma tribes, particularly the the five nations, the Choctaw, Cherokee, Chickasaw Creek, and Seminole nations in Oklahoma. Yep. Uh, so that was a great win. Um, and Coughlin is a mixed bag. Um, I know we'll be talking more about it in greater detail. Um, if it's cabined to just an interpretation of uh, the bankruptcy code, um, I think Indian law scholars are, are, don't find it problematic. Um, they do think it implicated foundational principles with regard to congressional authority to determine federal Indian policy and are not happy with how the, the uh, Supreme Court in the eight to one opinion addressed the issue. Um, but they're hoping that it's going to to be limited to uh, statutory interpretation in the bankruptcy code and not cascade across other areas of uh, federal American um, Indian law and policy. Wait, I suppose it's uh, appropriate at this time to mention the, well, it was a concurrence, but it really reads like a dissent uh, by Justice Thomas. He concurred in the judgment because he said, there's no tribal sovereign immunity in the first place. Period. End of story. None. Well, you was the only one with that view. <laughs> also, by the way, for those interested in the subject, I think it is well to read the dissent by Justice Gorsuch because, as you know, he come or came from the Tenth Circuit, and he is a strident advocate of tribes, their immunity, and their rights. And I think it's uh, very interesting to read what he has to say. Of course, Judd, uh, uh, Jack, he was, please, he, uh, Justice Gorsuch was also the author of uh, McGirt. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. He's 
he has shown a great sensitivity um, to these issues. Um, my own experience regarding um, the representation of of tribal governments and and federal court is they understand that they're going to be winners and losers. Um, a lot of these issues are are uh, complicated and controversial, um, but they've always felt that uh, that Gorsuch and many members of of the appellate courts, um, uh, federal appellate courts across the country, have a, that sensitivity that you know the American Indian, uh, particularly a, an enrolled member of an Indian tribe, probably uh, lives a life more federally regulated than any other citizen of the United States, and justices like Gorsuch, Gorsuch and other judges um, recognize that and are sensitive to the implications of their discussion. Even the questions that they ask in oral arguments, which are now easy to access, uh, can be offending um, to uh, tribal leaders and tribal members um, because sometimes it, it, it strikes the audience as being a little too flippant about things that are impacting their lives and regulate their lives on a daily basis. But he has had, he's had that great sensitivity. He's also, I think, the first Supreme Court justice to hire um, an enrolled tribal member as a law clerk. Well, listen, tell you what, in just a second, I'm going to ask two of you what this means more broadly than bankruptcy. But first, before we move on to that, our question to you is this. Does this decision, once and for all, and in all contexts, tell us that there is no tribal immunity when it comes to bankruptcy cases? Yeah, I think that as a matter of statutory interpretation, that's where the majority is going. Um, if they've gotten, and, and I think that there's a good argument that they've gotten there, that you find a waiver under 106A and 101.27 um, of sovereign uh, immunity and abrogation of sovereign immunity and erosion of sovereignty in the context of of uh, bankruptcy cases. Now, to you know, what are the outer limits of that? Even within a Title 11 case, I think is something we might be uh, looking at down the road. This case involved the violation of the automatic stay and damages that would be imposed under 362 and the court's supervisory powers. What happens when you're dealing with the avoidance powers, for example, uh, where the target is the tribe? Um, and those actions not only impact the sovereignty of the tribe, but they'll shape the economic development of those tribes um, because of the potential uh, liability. So I, I think the the smart money's betting that there's there's a a um, abrogation of sovereign immunity in the context of, of bankruptcy, but we'll fight over the contours of that. Um, and I also think that that um, and um, you know Tom brings this issue up uh, more eloquently than I do uh, and addresses it um, with a with a a wonderful elegance. It's a, it really questions the notion of of uh, sovereign immunity as we understood it prior to the Coughlin case. Well, if I, if I may, I, I would go from a person in the trenches, I would go further than Jacqueline. And Jack says, oh, you know, we'll be 
testing the contours of it. As a practitioner, standing up in front of a bankruptcy judge tomorrow, if I had to, and somehow tried to argue that Coughlin, I call it the Coughlin case, Coughlin doesn't mean what it says, and you still don't have jurisdiction over a tribal entity, a tribal government for this area, for Crandall, for cash collateral, but you do for state, state violations. I, I don't see that at all. I think any bankruptcy judge in this country is going to read this decision, say, which part of this do you find ambiguous, Mr. Salerno, and say, for all purposes, there is no there is no sovereign immunity for a trial. Certainly, I would go, I would go, when I having to apply this type of decision in practice, I, I would be hard-pressed to put boundaries on it because of the expansive, broad mandate that the Supreme Court decided in this case to issue. Okay, uh, listen, uh, Tom, while I've got you, I don't want to let go of you. Because $64 question is this. The Supreme Court may have cleared up an issue regarding tribal sovereign immunity by this decision, but, and I think, Tom, you have written a good deal on this. Does this decision have something to say more broadly about states' sovereign immunity? You know, Bill, when I first, when this decision first came out uh, and I saw the little blurb about it, of course, you need to you know, read all the decisions from the Supreme Court. But I, I saw the, you know, the, the byline, so to speak, and it was tribal immunity uh, issues. And so I'm thinking, this might be just interesting to look at, but it's not something that arises on a daily basis for me, but I figure I, I'm going to take a look at it. I read the decision, and I read the very narrow question, the way the Supreme Court phrased it, and then just assumed that everything that would follow would be based upon that narrow question before it. And in fact, what stunned me when I read it was the Supreme Court's not only said what I'm about to say, but doubled down at least twice in what they said later in the decision, which is notwithstanding the limited question, the Supreme Court read sections 10127 and 106A as abrogating sovereign immunity for any, any type of governmental unit that couldn't have been any clearer than that. And in fact, they went on to say Congress didn't specifically want to treat any one type of governmental entity different than another. And when I read this, I immediately said, wow, I have possibly been laboring under a, a misimpression for years because I had always read Seminole Tribes, the Seminole Tribe Supreme Court decision from 1996 as saying in a specific footnote, well, by the way, the Seminole tribe should not arise in a bankruptcy situation. Seminole tribe, we're not talking about what that does in a bankruptcy. That's a whole different question, and it doesn't deal with what we're dealing with states in sovereign immunity in a bankruptcy. They were very specific to say, don't read Seminole tribes that way. But everyone looked at it and said that was kind of an implicit recognition that the constitutionally based 11th Amendment, sovereign immunity of a state, was not being dealt with in Seminole Tribe. We're talking about something in, in a bankruptcy. That's something different. And so I scour this opinion and say, where do they talk about Seminole Tribe? And notwithstanding a majority decision, a concurrence by Thomas, and a dissent 
by Gorsuch. No, they haven't mentioned the Seminole tribe. They don't mention it. They simply pretend, I think, that it didn't exist. I can't imagine they're well aware of it. They simply did away with it. And to me, if I were a state government and I looked at this decision, they know what's coming down the track. They know what's going to happen is that people are going to use this language where the Supreme Court says this is an unambiguous statute. And the concurrence by Thomas says, I have a, the only issue I take with the majority decision is that they equate tribal immunity with state immunity. And so that's my concern. Well, if you follow that, then that means that the majority opinion says, in their minds, there is no difference between state sovereign immunity and tribal sovereign immunity. And though on a personal level, with what I do with bankruptcy, I'm okay with that. I have to, I've had to deal with states asserting sovereign immunity, which creates a real issue in bankruptcy cases. Believe me, I will use this argument often and, and all the time because it says what it says, and presumably the Supreme Court meant what it says. But I think there's, there, there's no reasonable doubt that the real question has been raised as to whether or not the bankruptcy code in section 106A trumps 11th Amendment protections for states, for states in particular. Now, if, if people agree or disagree, they, that, that's certainly my impression uh, and, the, and the subject of the article that I wrote to the ABI. Derek, how do you read this? Well, first, I think the um, um, uh, Tom's observation, that very last observation, regarding the 11th, 11th Amendment and um, Section 106A's abrogation of um, the 11th Amendment, or what otherwise might be the 11th Amendment protection, and of course the importance of Seminole Nation and its uh, holding that um, the state's sovereign immunity is uh, derives from the structure of the Constitution itself. I think that conclusion, which is an important practical conclusion for how bankruptcy will be practiced, uh, particularly with the role that state agencies play in so many of these cases, I think that that thesis of of, of Tom's is is um, is strongly supported by um, that juxtaposition of federal um, Indian law with the bankruptcy code in the Coughlin case itself. So Coughlin itself um, has to be understood. As the Supreme Court interpreting uh, a bankruptcy code provision um, and concluding that the bankruptcy code provision is itself a, a um, an abrogation by Congress or an abdication of Congress of its plenary power over federal Indian tribes um, that is embedded in the Constitution itself. In other words. Can an interpretation of Section 106 overcome uh, what otherwise would be a constitutional protection enjoyed by tribes under the separation of powers doctrine? And the answer is yes. And the Supreme Court interprets that the language is unambiguous, but what the Supreme Court doesn't interpret is that sovereign immunity doesn't even really address, and that's why I think Seminole Nation's not cited, is that the Supreme Court doesn't address the fact that sovereignty, sovereignty and sovereign immunity are political decisions. They're not simply a matter of statutory interpretation and the embracement of canons of construction. That 
if for federal Indian law, a waiver of sovereign immunity can only be achieved by either the tribe or by Congress. And if Congress does it consistent with its separation of powers function, it has to do so uh, meeting the uh, kind of the what we call the unequivocal expression requirement or the clear statement requirement that uh, Justice Gorsuch's um, addresses in his dissent. That becomes in, important because um, the what the court is doing when it's looking at an, a waiver of sovereign immunity and an erosion of sovereignty that comes with it is um, the Congress, the political arm of the government, making a political decision, having considered tribal uh, affairs and tribal consequences, and then manifesting that decision in um, uh, unequivocal language in the statute. So it's a, really a two-step process. It's not simply, is this a plausible reading, or is this even the more reasonable approach to interpreting this language? It's first, are we convinced that Congress considered the tribe and tribal sovereignty? And then second, did that consideration result in unequivocal expression of the waiver of sovereignty. Um, and here the court has concluded, um, I think, uh, that uh, they have done so simply by the language, the unequivocal language uh, employed um, in 106. Why that analysis wouldn't apply in the context of state agencies would be beyond my uh, humble capability of distinguishing uh, the two types of, of sovereigns. Um, looks like you've had something to say further. You know, well, the, the other thing I think, if I may, that really struck me when I read this decision is the approach of this current court and the way that they're dealing with things, the way that they're dealing in particular with the bankruptcy code, certainly. And we all know this is coming up again, right, in the third-party release area which is going to be, go before the court. But this is what this tells me when I look at this as someone who's got to, you know, circumvent around or, or navigate around these decisions. If you look at prior Supreme Court decisions on bankruptcy issues, the courts have gone out of their way to not have the law of unintended consequences. Because when you look, and I'll give you an example, on the area of the new cash exception to the absolute priority rule, okay? When you look at the bankruptcy code, if there, there's no one below equity and there's no provision of the bankruptcy code whatsoever that you can put new money in and old equity can then get back in the game through a reorganization in a chapter 11. There's nothing in the code. You could look all day, 105, the great 105 powers, you got that, and perhaps 1129, a three powers uh, like was used in in other instances. But the point is, is that that came before the Supreme Court twice in about a year and a half. And that was the Ehlers case and then the 203 North LaSalle case. And the specific issue that was before the court was, did the new cash exception survive the enactment of the bankruptcy code in 1978? That's, that was the question. I think this court, this current court, though, we'd have an absolute answer just like they did in Coughlin. As my old mentor, John Dawson, used to say, sometimes in error, but never in doubt. 
They just said, oh, here it is. The Supreme Court panels in both uh, Ehlers and, uh, and 203 North and South, which was like 1999 and 2000, both said, this is an issue that's going to have ramifications, so we're not going to give you that clear-cut answer. Instead, we're going to say, if it did, this needs it or this doesn't need it. They found ways to dance between the raindrops to avoid the broad pronouncement that was going to have these sort of consequences. And again, in the Seminole Trotics, even though it didn't arise in a bankruptcy, these justices had the foresight to say, oh, I could see how people are going to use this in a bankruptcy and tried to avoid that sort of broad pronouncement. This Supreme Court has no breaks in that sense. They are going to say what's on their mind. That's their, that's their prerogative. They are the Supreme Court. But it, it, it's a very interesting change in approach to bankruptcy matters, in my humble opinion, that we have a court that no longer says, I'm going to dance between the raindrops on areas I don't fully understand. They're not going to do that. They're just throwing it out there. Tom, I think what you're telling us is that from your point of view, when the Supreme Court gets its teeth into the Purdue case, probably to be argued in December, that uh, we shouldn't be betting that non-debtor, third-party, non-consensual releases are going to survive because it's not in the code. And they got have mercy on our soul, Bill. And they got have mercy on our soul. And we're, <laughs> I know it's not the point of this panel, but there are practical ramifications, both good and bad, which flow from these sorts of broad mandates. And yeah. me, I'm okay with saying, states, we're dragging you in. You're going to be dragged into a bankruptcy. We get to deal with things. You don't get to stay on the outside and, and snipe in. I'm okay with that. But there's other sides of that as well. And and so it, it's, it is prop, it's a difference in approach, in my opinion, that we've not seen with other court compositions, at least in my 40 years of experience. Well, uh, you know, I think I'm reading the Supreme Court same way you are, uh, Tom. I'm going to end us to ask you a question about whether some language in this opinion by Justice Jackson can apply elsewhere. One of the most troublesome issues I have had in the last few years is whether arbitration agreements are going to be generally enforceable or not in bankruptcy cases, because there was a Supreme Court opinion this last term called Coinbase, which told us that if you deny a motion to compel arbitration, the lawsuit in federal court is enjoined, period, end stop, until the appeal from denial of arbitration is over with. And a case like that could have a major effect on bankruptcy. Now, I found language in Justice Jackson's opinion to be very interesting if applied to the question of whether or not arbitration agreements are generally enforceable or not in bankruptcy. She said that the bankruptcy code's orderly and centralized debt resolution process generally, generally applies to all creditors. And she had put the word all in italics. Now, am I reading too much into this 
you know, if I were to interpret that language to suggest that it could be used to say that the bankruptcy code applies to the Federal Arbitration Act and therefore creates a general exception to the Federal Arbitration Act. You know, Bill, from my perspective on the arbitration issue and whether or not arbitration clauses are somehow superseded or overridden by the bankruptcy code, that to me creates a lot less problems for this reason. At the end of the day, a bankruptcy creates an estate. And if you're a creditor out there, you have a choice. My choice is I can file a claim against the estate, in which case you're consenting to jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court for things such as an objection to your claim. You can't file a claim against the bankruptcy estate. The debtor objects, and then you say, oh, no, we have to go to arbitration because you have availed you. You've gone into the bankruptcy court and filed a claim, much like starting a lawsuit. You don't start a lawsuit, the defendant answers, and then you say, oh, we have to go to arbitration. That's a waiver. And where you get into the issue is where someone doesn't file a claim, and the debtor simply seeks to file one for them and object or otherwise try and drag them into the bankruptcy process. That becomes a more interesting thing. The other reason that doesn't keep me up night, Bill, is this. It depends on the type of claim. For example, if the creditor says I'm owed $100 and the debtor objects, and they say, oh, we have to go to arbitration, that's one thing. If, on the other hand, you're accusing the debtor says you received a fraudulent transfer, you received a preference, you received these sorts of things, which are specific chapter five avoidance actions, I don't think anyone would ever suggest that you can arbitrate a chapter five avoidance action because at the time you entered into the arbitration agreement, those claims didn't exist. They don't exist until the moment you file a bankruptcy. And so as a result of that, I become less worried about enforcing arbitration clauses in bankruptcy because it's a practical matter. Usually the creditor wants a piece of the pie. And once they file the claim, you can't then say, I was just kidding, or you, I, I want money, but I don't want you, judge, to ever say how much I'm owed. I, th I think that's why that's a difference to me than the 106 issue here. But again, I, I, I have a viewpoint of a practitioner who's trying to navigate these things not a more global perspective, I suppose. Well, this is so typical. <laughs> Supreme Court says something. It clears it up one issue. <laughs> <laughs> and the dust it kicks up is going to uh, complicate, confuse us on many other even unrelated issues for years to come. Well, listen, I, I want to thank both of you for participating I've certainly learned a lot, and uh, we will be back, as I indicated, with further ABI presentations about Purdue, as well as other decisions from the Supreme Court this last term. Until then, be well, stay safe, and I hand you back to John Harkin at ABI. Thank you to our guests for the engaging discussion on this key Supreme Court case. And thank you for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast. This and more than 200 others can be found in the newsroom at abi.org. Thank you and have a wonderful day.